Thanks for joining us for a classic edition of In the Studio with Michael Card. Several years ago, this weekly program was recorded at Michael's home studio in Franklin, Tennessee. We got to meet many of Michael's friends and hear about the work of God in the Nashville community and around the world. Though some of the details about guests and ministries may have changed, the powerful lessons from the Bible and the reality of God's faithfulness told in these conversations stand the test of time. This session is made possible by our friends with the Christian Standard Bible. Learn more about the CSB translation online when you visit csbible.com. Listen now to this program from the archives. This is In the Studio with Michael Card. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Thanks for joining us for this week's program. Michael, question for you. Are you still teaching your Bible studies at the Franklin House? Yeah, Tuesday night, we have a class on the life of Jesus. We're in uh, John uh, 13 right now. So as we prepare today's program on a Wednesday, you were actually teaching last night. Yes. Uh-huh. And that's every Tuesday night? Every Tuesday night. Well, great. And yeah. sometimes you're a student and sometimes you're a teacher. Uh, mostly a student, though. Mostly a student. <laughs> Well, today I think we'll both be students yes. because we have uh, some remarkable guests joining us on today's program. We'll talk to Dr. D.A. Carson, first of all, in a few moments, and later Calvin Miller uh, mm-hmm. will join us uh, again here on the broadcast. Uh, two wonderful men joining us here on the broadcast today. Let's get started right away with Dr. D.A. Carson, who is Research Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, uh, such a rich biblical thinker, and uh, has written so many books that we've all appreciated so much, Michael. And a hymn writer as well. Yes. So uh, thanks for joining us, Don. Oh, it's my great privilege. We are looking forward to our conversation today. We're going to talk about the kingdom of God together. Would you like to introduce the passage we're going to study together, and then we'll ask Michael to sing a song. Well, the first passage we're going to look at is um, Isaiah 11. It's... um, passage that is rich in imaginative constructions and so on. It it, it appears at a time in the book of Isaiah when destruction has been pronounced, and the Israelites have been warned not to trust any of the superpowers of the day, like Assyria. And, And just in the preceding passages, Isaiah says, finally, that the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. In other words, destruction everywhere. And then chapter 11 begins, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now, the Jesse reference, of course, is to the Davidic line. In other words, what's assumed is that that the Davidic line itself will be cut down. This tree will be cut down, too, which sounds uh, uh, terrible for the the entire promised Davidic dynasty. Sounds like the end. It sounds like the end. But now a shoot comes up out of it, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. And then in glorious description, you have a picture of this Davidic king, and thus and thus the reinstituted kingdom, coming along, born by the Spirit of God, how he will rule. He will rule with righteousness. By this righteousness, he will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth, and so forth. Righteousness will be his belt, until ultimately there is a transformed a world, a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, so transformed that there is no savagery anymore. Mm. Um, the very famous poem by Rudyard Kipling about the law of the jungle, this is the law of the jungle, as old and as true as the skies, the wolf that shall keep it may prosper, but the wolf that shall break it must die. Mm. And the law of the jungle is eat or be eaten, kill or be killed. But now we're told the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, the infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and so forth. And then finally, this spectacular vision, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Well, it's not often that a professor has to stop in the middle of his uh, teaching to uh, to make room for some music, but we're going to do just that right now because I think this will enrich our conversation together uh, around the word as we stop here and listen to Michael's song called The Kingdom. And uh, we have a, a group of musicians in the studio with us today, including Scott Brazier on piano and Paul Eckberg with percussion, Sam Levine with Woodwinds here, joining Michael on this song. Then we'll come back and talk about the kingdom of God. Thank you. 
so near and yet still so far far away so close and yet still to come concealed the seed is mysteriously growing in hearts that will listen and hear a treasure that's hidden a pearl of great price a fortune for fools who Is given and the government will be on his shoulders. 
on the one hand, uh, clearly he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. It, it, is, it is an ongoing fulfillment of the old Davidic dynasty. On the other hand, we're told he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So when Jesus comes, you see, and insists that he is himself the king, and insists on the one hand that he descends from David's line, nevertheless the text also insists that, that in, in, in another sense, he, he is aligned with God himself. He, he is to be worshipped as God. He, he is himself claiming the prerogatives of deity, even though he claims to descend from David's line. This is the Davidic kingdom ratcheted up to be nothing less than the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, which will uh, ultimately work out in a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. What does he mean when he says that the, then that the kingdom is in you? That seems like a completely different approach or direction. Um, the, the little uh, preposition in is, is rendered in many translations, is among you. Mm -hmm. And I think the point is that some people were looking forward to the kingdom coming in a dramatic, apocalyptic bang sort mm -hmm. of way. But Jesus says, as many of the parables that he teaches especially make clear, that the kingdom actually comes in a subtler way. Mm -hmm. It is already among you. It's among them with the presence of the king, uh. who, 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 who is there already uh, transforming people, uh, turning people's uh, hearts to the Lord. Thus, instead of an apocalyptic bang, you've got this... this this yeast that's beginning to grow and multiply. It, it's like a, a little seed that is put in the ground and yet grows into a great tree. Mm -hmm. so, so in that sense, in the New Testament, the kingdom is seen to come with the coming of Christ, and especially with his cross work and resurrection, and, and, and finally with his ascension to the right hand on high, so that all authority is given to him in heaven and on earth. Yet, at the same time, the kingdom has even then not yet come in its uh, consummated, fulfilled, spectacular way, that, that depends on Christ coming back. Isn't this where we get so confused because of this multi-layered, I guess would be the word, uh, kingdom? Because we try to apply, you know, um, things now that aren't meant for, for this particular time, it's for the kingdom to come. Or, if, even if they are meant as goals, we must always remember that utopia is not going to take place until the end. Even when we, in the name of the kingdom, pursue righteousness and try to do justice and love people truly and so on, precisely because we are children of the kingdom. Yet, at the end, utopia is not going to happen until Christ himself comes back. Um, one of the best analogies that I've heard of this uh, tension came out of um, uh, language that was formulated uh, in the wake of World War II, was a, there was a, a theologian by the name of Kuhlman who put it together. Uh, toward the end of World War II, the Russians were pressing in from the east, and the Allies had uh, cleared out uh, North Africa and were pressing up the boot of Italy. And then on D-Day, um, the Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy and within three days dumped in 1.1 million men and countless tons of war material. And, and anybody with half a brain in his head could see that the war was over. The Allies had the, the, the means of production, the energy, everything. The, the, the war was over. It was done. But that doesn't mean that Hitler quit. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the worst fighting came after that in the Battle of the Bulge and, and, and so on. He, he, he was enraged, like Satan in the book of Revelation. We're told that his fury knows no bounds because he knows his, his, his time is short. Mm -hmm. so, so that on the one hand, the war was over. On the other hand, the war was still going on until you finally got victory in Europe Day. Now, in that sense, in the New Testament, the kingdom has come. It came with the coming of Jesus. It came with his dramatic victory on the cross. It came with his resurrection, his exaltation. The kingdom is here. The war is over. The crucial battle is fought. In that sense, anyone with half a brain in his head, spiritually speaking, can see who's going to win. Mm. But that doesn't mean that Satan sits back and says, oh, whoops, I quit. I give up. I give up. <laughs> you see? Rather, he knows his time is short. And so we're caught between the already and the not yet. The already of the kingdom having dawned, having started, and yet we're still in the midst of this fighting until Christ returns and wraps it all up. So how do we become citizens of that kingdom? Well, in, in the New Testament, there are lots of ways of looking at it. John 3 says that unless you are 
born again, you cannot see the kingdom, you cannot enter it. Mm-hmm. What is required is a work of grace in the heart, in the life, that, um, that, that, that uh, turns on faith. We are to trust Christ, we are to believe in Christ, and in this work of grace we come under his lordship, we confess him as Lord, we, uh, we, 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 we cheerfully announce that he is the sovereign, mm-hmm. and, and, and he works in us a work that not only forgives us, but 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 continues to work in us, transforming us by His Spirit. The Spirit Himself is seen as the down payment of the promised inheritance, the promised inheritance of the kingdom that, that comes to all the sons and daughters of the kingdom on the last day. And already the Spirit Himself works in us uh, as, as, as the down payment of that promised inheritance. And that's what it means to be a Christian. So Christians who people who are said to be Christians because they have faith in Christ are also said to be in the church and in the kingdom. That is, that is, they're under the saving reign of God, looking forward to the kingdom and all of its transformed, transformed, consummated splendor on the last day. Hmm. Well, it's, a, it's still an interesting, I don't know if paradox is the right word. Peter will tell me that I'm a stranger and I, um, you, you know, you know what I'm getting at? I mean, I, the, the, the already and the not yet is is a is a uh, a struggling place to be in it is because uh, from a certain point of view um satan still rules he is said to have enormous power and sway even yet and Christ's saving reign is being contested just as the allies victory was contested until the very end mm-hmm. the kingdom is not yet uncontested mm. and in that sense we we may well be in the kingdom, but the whole universe is still groaning under a death sentence, under under a usurping power. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 that uh, the whole creation groans in travail, waiting for the, for the ultimate adoption of sons. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, we are going to feel like aliens. Mm-hmm. In that sense, uh, to, to use Peter's language, we're, we're, we're citizens of another kingdom and not this one. Mm-hmm. We may be Americans or Canadians or Brits or whatever we are, but, but there's a sense in which our, our highest citizenship is, is the kingdom to come. Mm-hmm. And we're sort of an outpost in time, an outpost in, in human citizenships here where we, have, where we give only relative loyalty. Our ultimate loyalty is to the King of Kings, the mm-hmm. Lord of Lords, and His kingdom. And we alluded to the Matthew five passage, the Beatitudes. That that really is the outline. I sometimes refer to those Beatitudes as the norms of the kingdom, mm-hmm. and they 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 rather powerfully show something of the way kingdom values are so different from mm-hmm. the values of this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, this world is full of uh, triumphalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the strongest person, the most um, the, the most in your face person, wins. But this passage begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for Mm -hmm. theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is, you begin with a certain contrition, recognize your bankruptcy, and and in the first century, often those people were also poor in their pockets as well. Mm -hmm. And and, and this is clearly written for a time when everything is in contention. The last beatitude reads, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. These are the norms of the kingdom. At this point, people in the kingdom expect a certain kind of opposition, and and worldwide, that needs to be recognized. Mm-hmm. The best Christian demographer who sort of plots uh, where Christian numbers are and, and how they're developing and so on, he says that during the last 10 years, there have been an average of about 145 Christian martyrs a year. Wow. I know. 100, wow. 145,000, sorry. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I was thinking. Mm-hmm. 145,000 Christian martyrs a year. And um, and, and, and we, we may have been spared a lot of that uh, here, but... But blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is still a contested time, Mm -hmm. and the consummated kingdom is not yet. So on the one hand, we look back to the cross and we say, thank you, Jesus, you are the king. Mm -hmm. We confess you as Lord. And on the other hand, we look forward with Christians in every age and say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Mm Dr. D.A. Carson is with us in the studio today here with Michael Card, uh, joining us by telephone and a rich discussion here of uh, the kingdom of God. And, and, and uh, Michael, I can, I can sense that you're really uh, ignited by this. Yes, I'm so excited yeah. to go, go so deep so fast. It's, yeah. it's hard to come back to just talking about the radio. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask a question of you, Dr. Carson. Um, 
there's, um, I, I love the truth that the kingdom is among us. And it's like we should be kingdom watchers then. We should be looking for this evidence everywhere we turn. But what evidence do you see that we misunderstand it and that we, that we, that we, that we don't come to grips with it and we don't live with this kingdom mindset? Um, sometimes in Christian circles, this, this varies enormously in different parts of the world, but sometimes in Christian circles, we think of Christianity as merely a kind of escape ticket from condemnation, escape ticket from hell. Hmm. And, and all of our notions of the kingdom um, have to do with the future. There's no deep entailment in how to live now. Boy, how tragic. We're, we're saved from something, but not saved to something. That's right. Yeah. And, and what that does is fail to understand how the kingdom and the king uh, are operative now. It, it, it becomes an empty confession that Jesus is Lord. To say that he is... I'll tell you this. Part of our problem, I think, is that, is that many of us in the West are so committed to the ideal of democracy that in one sense, the notion of kingdom is alien to us. Mm. And even when we think of kingdom, we may think of the British monarchy, which is a constitutional monarchy. Yeah, we still have a say-so in there somewhere. Yeah, we have a big say-so. Yeah. I mean, the, the constitutional monarch uh, doesn't say much more than yes or no, and we'll be tighter if she says no. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yet the notion of kingdom as a constitutional monarchy is simply not found in Scripture. Mm-hmm. And um, we may well say in this fallen world order that democracy is the best form of government because because we're, we're all sinners and we all are corrupt. But supposing the king is God himself, then suddenly the notion of kingdom as absolute autocracy looks much more attractive. To, to think of an autocracy like the kingdom of Saudi Arabia may not seem very attractive to some of us in the West at the moment, mm-hmm. but supposing the king were God himself. Thus the notion of kingdom in the Bible is bound up with God's right to be king. Mm-hmm. He is God. He made us. He made us for himself. And, and, uh, and, and to try to cover that with a notion of democracy in which somehow right and wrong are established by personal preferences or group ideologies or, mm-hmm. or a, a vote of the plurality or, or something is another way of de-godding God. To affirm the kingdom is in some ways to reaffirm the sheer godhood of God. So we need to shed these misconceptions in order to really fully come to grips with this. That's right. Yeah. And, and on the other hand, you see, you can have too much emphasis on what the kingdom brings now, too. Some people have so little, give so little reflection to the notion of the kingdom still to come, the consummation, that they want all the glories and powers and transformations that will be ours at the end, to be operative now. Mm-hmm. So they expect all miracle, all healing, all transformation necessarily to take place now, or clearly there's some fault on our side. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, death still rules until the end. The last enemy to be overcome mm-hmm. is death. We do not yet have resurrection bodies. Mm-hmm. That awaits the end. We are not going to have utopia now. That awaits the end. So we're caught between this tension. On the one hand, Jesus is king. We bow to his lordship. It affects how we live. It affects how we love one another. It affects our God-centeredness, and with our God-centeredness, therefore, our relationships also with one another. It affects how we think about war and racism and personal relationships and integrity in the family and honesty with money and and, and, and gratitude in life and to trust before an, uh, an almighty God. It affects everything. But... The final consummated transformation still is to come, and we are caught in that tension. Well, it answers the this a- angry question that people are asking about 9-11. Where was God? Why, you know, yeah, he could right. have stopped that. Why didn't it? But you're giving us the perfect answer, the perfect response to that. There is sin still here. And, and if God uh, um, had stopped 9-11, then surely if he had been committed at that point to stopping all sin everywhere, in every person, which one of us would, be, would have been left standing? Do we just uh, throw our hands up then and not try to oppose it, or do we, do we oppose Satan and his work? Oh, of course we do. We must, um, because the kingdom has already dawned. God still is the ultimate sovereign. Uh, we must oppose it. But we'd better do so with a certain kind of humility of mind and a certain kind of grace, recognizing that in our heart of hearts, we are no better. Um, We are not in the kingdom because we're wiser or better or more lovely or more intrinsically powerful or any uh, any, any, uh, superiority on our part. 
the kingdom is, um, is, is, is God's saving, transforming reign by which he takes poor sinners like you and me and, and forgives us, transforms us, starts working in us by a spirit, and, and ultimately, on the last day, will transform us and, and, and give us new resurrection bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. And, and, and that's why children of the kingdom, when they announce the good news of the kingdom, should never come across triumphalistically, but always like poor beggars telling other poor beggars where there's bread. Well, Dr. Carson and Michael, with your permission, I'd like to uh, circle back. I'd like for us to read the Beatitudes, uh, Matthew chapter 5. And then, Dr. Carson, as we conclude our time today, I pray, I would ask that you pray that uh, we be this kind of kingdom thinker and kind of kingdom person that God wants us to be. Um, if you don't mind, I'll read this, Michael. This is yeah. from the New Living Translation, beginning at verse 3 of Matthew 5. God blesses those who realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is given to them. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are gentle and lowly, for the whole earth will belong to them. God blesses those who are hungry and thirsty for justice, for they will receive it in full. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted because they live for God, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when you are mocked and persecuted and lied about because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted too. Father God, we rejoice that you are the king. We bow gladly before your lordship. We thank you for sending your own dear son, Christ Jesus, who is himself the promised king in David's line. We thank you that he is described in Scripture as King of kings and Lord of lords. It is such a spectacularly wonderful privilege to be his subjects. Work in us, we beg of you, all that is pleasing in your sight, uh, in our living under his lordship, in our living under his kingship, as we press forward, eagerly pant for the consummated kingdom when Christ himself returns. We rejoice to recall that all authority is given to Christ Jesus in heaven and on earth. And because of that authority, we have a confidence in, in witness and proclamation and the pursuit of righteousness that we would otherwise entirely lack. But at the same time, we, we join the church in every generation in crying out, Even so come, Lord Jesus, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks so much, Don, for uh, joining us. Thanks for teaching us about the kingdom, for opening the Word of God. To oh, us. my privilege, Michael. Uh, blessings on you and your extensive and really influential ministry. Thank you. And you are listening to In the Studio with Michael Card. We're coming up on the halfway point. We pray that God is using this time together to deepen your understanding of His Word. And if that is happening, let us know. And then if you have a question about the Bible or living the Christian life, you can pass that along to us as well. Send your email to inthestudio at michaelcard.com. And if you'd like to learn more about this program and Michael's music ministry, log on to www.michaelcard.com. Coming up in the second half, we'll talk with Calvin Miller about how to develop new and creative ways to teach God's Word here on the Moody Broadcasting Network. Here's Michael on creativity and the CSB Adorned Bible. I mean, it's almost there's a surprise element to what art does. You see a picture and you're drawn in and you... Um, like one of these Doré images, all of a sudden you're sort of there before you realize what's happened. This month's featured resource is a beautiful addition combining the current CSB translation with classic depictions of Bible events from Gustav Doré's wood engravings. Learn more about the CSB Adorned Bible at csbible.com. When you order, receive a 40% discount on your CSB purchase at Lifeway. Just type card 40 with no spaces for your 40% discount. The CSB Adorned Bible, a great translation with a collection of 200 masterworks to inspire your imagination. Order your copy when you search for CSB Adorned Bible at csbible.com.
Welcome back to our time in the studio with Michael Card and Wayne Shepard. And Michael, all I have to do is say our guest's name and a big smile comes to your face. All you have to do is say his first name and a big smile comes to your face. Calvin is with us. Yeah, Calvin Miller. <laughs> good friend. Good bud. Yes, we go to stupid movies together. <laughs> Male bonding Male time. Bondy. <laughs> all right, Calvin, tell us a movie that you and Michael saw together. Well, I tell you, I'm, I'm almost ashamed to confess it was, it was, uh, it was Wayne's World. It, was, it happened in about 1990, but oh my goodness. we can't quit talking about it. It shattered my illusion. Oh. Well, what happened was we were in the studio. We are having a great time just recording stuff with Phil Kagi and... It just been a great day, and at the end of it, Michael said, "Well, let's do some male bonding." And I said, well, "What's your idea of male bonding?" I'm a little cautious of that term. <laughs> he said, "Well, he said we start out at Arby's with a Jamoka shake, and then we go to a movie that doesn't matter." <laughs> We've so we all that... loaded in in his pickup, and we went. But you got to realize what this is like for me. Like I, you know, I've, through college, I'd read The Singer and The Song, and I mean all Calvin's books. I mean, it was uh, it was an experience. <laughs> It was an experience. Calvin, we've determined that Michael's love language is going to a movie together. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, you know, I think both of us live, you know, we, we try to be artistic, but we leave this kind of hassle life between uh, the next appointment and worrying how we're doing, mm-hmm. and we're neurotic to beat the Dickens. <laughs> and so it just it just works out good to slip away and do something yeah. that well, doesn't matter. The f- final final frame from that evening was we're all driving back, and everybody's, you know, sugar buzz you know we've eaten candy and popcorn and stuff and from the back of the car comes calvin's little voice this male bonding isn't all it's cracked up to be <laughs> i think i was sitting on a, a some of your uh fellow shotgun yeah <laughs> but that's enough of the story for now <laughs> well we do love to talk with you calvin you've been with us previously on the program here and it's great to welcome you back in the studio with us even though you're you're uh, grafted into the studio via telephone line here today well thank you wayne i appreciate it your latest book is called the sermon maker and right. i'm intrigued by that you've got to tell us all about that well you know i uh, i i actually did the rom lectures at trinity a seminary in deerfield illinois and uh, and uh, I used uh, some of this material there, but it was a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a narrative approach. Uh, it's a narrative that that begets narrative that begs the preachers to uh, take uh, story to their sermons hmm. and uh, and get the world interested. Let's hmm. see stories. Story. I think that should ring a bell with you, Michael. Uh, it does. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's the way that we engage with our imaginations. Yeah. Uh, I was at Calvin's church in Omaha one time. As, uh, I'll never forget this. I mean, this is such a good example of his uh, his abilities. It was Easter, and someone had, I guess you, I don't know if you did it or you made some, had somebody else do it, but they had taken the cross, this big cross off the wall, and it was sitting sideways on the altar. And there were three candles, one where the head would be, one at the end of an upright, and one down sort of on the side of the cross. And you know, this is Easter Sunday sermon. This should be a big, you know, this is the big show, right? This is when this, you know, you don't do risky things on Easter Sunday. And lo and behold, um, uh, Calvin comes up and starts telling the story of Peter's three denials and just very spontaneously telling it as a story. And each time Peter denies, Calvin blows a candle out. And then he comes back to the John 21 passage where, you know, do you love me? And Jesus gives Peter three chances to reaffirm his love. And every time he reaffirmed his love, Calvin would relight the candle. And that was the sermon. Mm -hmm. It was powerful. I I love that. You know, I haven't done that much since I quit being a pastor. Of course, I don't, now that I'm a professor, I don't speak on Easter. I always enjoy Easter, but Mm -hmm. probably because I don't speak, but Mm -hmm. uh, I do kind of say I'm I'm real big on letting an image do the driving wherever possible. Yeah. I just did a, an ordination service this last week for one of my students, and uh, I got to thinking, uh, well, what would I say to a young pastor about to be ordained? And I, I, I encourage him to do two things. Number one, preach the questions, because I think mm. as long as people find great questions, there's mystery in the faith. Things we can't answer intrigues people more than the things we can. Wow. And so uh, I gave him a, a, a kind of a Celtic pewter cup, and I lettered on the cup the little Latin phrase from Mark 14, 22 out of the Vulgate, uh, hoc uh, corpus meum est, uh, this is my body. And uh, then I gave him a sword, and uh, it was a really rather pretty sword. I, and uh, But my wife had taken these gold letters and lettered the word Machaira down the blade from from Hebrews 14 to, or 412, mm-hmm. uh, the word of God is a sword. 
and uh, so I gave me those two things, and I and I talked about preaching the answers and preaching the questions. Do both mm. of those. And but what was kind of neat was that when I gave him the sword, because these little kids, when I took it out of the bag, oh, I bet they kids, loved that. They just loved that, you know. <laughs> so they all came up to the front. They wanted to see that. <laughs> so I don't know. I really am. Uh, I'm big on the sermon uh, having a wherever it can to have a, a dominant image that stands out there and causes us to think of the passage the next time we see it. Just like you, uh, Michael, spontaneously remember John 21. It's been 10 years, 12 years ago that we did this. But you still remember the passage and how we connected it to the cross. That's how it works. That's right. I think it's 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 an important way to preach. Calvin, you are investing your life these days in helping young preachers. Uh, Tell us where you're doing that. I'm working at Beeson Divinity School, which is uh, one of the Southern Baptist new seminaries, it's really an ecumenical school. We have all kinds of different denominations in Beeson, but it is at Sanford University, a Baptist university. Southern Baptists have about 62 universities, and about 10 of them uh, since 1978 have started their own divinity schools. Hmm. Uh, Baylor and uh, Sanford, uh, Wake Forest, uh, McAfee, which is a, oh, uh, what is it? It's founding schools in Macon, Georgia, Mercer, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So uh, these new schools have kind of all sprung up uh, I suppose, out of the Baptist quarrel to some degree. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Michael, I was just thinking, here Calvin Miller now is professor. Maybe there's some hope for these uh, young sermon makers uh, oh, coming yeah. along to have this kind of influence <laughs> in their life. Huh? Yeah, absolutely. Bill, Bill Lane was always talking about deprogramming the people that came out of seminary so they could be useful in the community. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I miss Bill, so yeah. I, I, I thought I think one of the most creative things that we ever did, Michael, was to do that uh, one-year anniversary thing of his funeral. Mm-hmm. That was the most meaningful thing to me that right. I think I've ever done. I, I still will never forget all those people gathered under the funeral tent at yeah. the cemetery, yeah. uh, rehearsing the value of this man's life. And But but what I miss most about him was that he, he loved my poetry. Yes. And I have lots of letters from him, you know, just mm. just a wonderful little epistles of joy. Mm. I so miss those, and yeah. I miss him. I'm glad he's with God, but... I sure have missed him. Oh, me too. Me too. Let's talk about the power of narrative. Uh, right. It was only uh, a few short years ago that I heard a uh, African-American brother give a, a sermon, a narrative sermon, and I was just captivated by his message that day. Right. Well, And I'm always trying to, uh, in my doctoral courses on preaching, I, I uh, actually assigned them uh, some interactive reporting with the Garrison Keillor's tapes. Mm-hmm. I want them to hear what storytellers do mm-hmm. and uh, how each sentence draws us to the next until finally uh, all possibility of uh, being disinterested is gone. And we're, <laughs> we're wrapped up. You don't have a choice in the matter you almost. Do you <laughs> do not have a choice. And I, I think that's what narrative does. I'm, I'm, I'm praying that, that more and more uh, I'm trying to wed the word exposition to it because Generally speaking, in every preaching class I've ever had, first day or two of class, some student will say, do you believe in uh, storytelling or you do you believe in expository preaching? And I'm, mm. I'm always trying to say, hey, these are not antithetical categories. Mm-hmm. Jesus was an expositor par excellence, but he did it all through stories. He exposed the truth of God with narrative, and, and we remember it better. Plus, it's more biblical. You know, I, I say in the sermon maker that we have to remember the story comes first. When the book of Genesis begins, the first words that begin it are, Breshit bara Elohim, in the beginning God created. Mm. And those are the primeval once upon a time words, and the story begins. Mm. And all the theology that we've developed since then we draw the theology from the story and not vice versa. Mm-hmm. The story is first. And so I still think it's the primary teaching point of God, and I'm I'm really big on that. I, I don't mean that you can dump the precepts or the propositions in preaching, but uh, I think we do what the Bible does. The Bible kind of mixes the precepts and the stories together. And be creative about it. That's right. Yeah. And uh, and if possible, uh, let some image in the, in the text do the driving. Mm. Well, let me ask you a terribly loaded question. Okay. <laughs> How do you see Jesus doing that? Well, uh, I see I see a, t- a wholly inductive style, Michael. I I think what I what I visualize here, and I usually use this. I probably beat this illustration to death, but one of the Pharisees or the Jewish legalists uh, say to Jesus, "Who is my neighbor?" Hmm. And Jesus uh, does not say, "Let me give you three Hebrew roots on that and hmm. a, a three point sermon." He says. Uh, a certain man went down from Jerusalem, Jericho. He launches immediately into a story. Mm. And when he gets through with the story, he still doesn't answer the question, who is my neighbor? Right. He says, 
who do you think was neighbor? Mm-hmm. Wow. So this is an inductive thing that Jesus does. He tells a story and says, you make the decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's your call. So I, I think that's what you do in, in great narrative preaching. You, you lay out the propositions of God in a narrative form, and then you say to them, what do you think? Does that translate to today's culture, though? I think so. And, and I, I think I really believe that today's culture is a narrative culture. America's number one export are movies and novels. Mm. Uh, and I think, I think that if a preacher ignores the fact that we're an entertainment-saturated culture, you know, reading Neil Postman, Amusing Ourselves to Death, or great books like this, Jeremy mm-hmm. Ripken's Emerging Order, these all make it pretty clear that we've become a kind of once-upon-a-time nation. Mm. We're a storytelling people, so to speak to, to our nation and to the people who live here, um, they're familiar with stories. Uh, sermons that, that won't engage a story have, uh, have misaligned themselves with the times. Mm. Am I being too dogmatic? No, no, no. I, no, I, tend, to be a, I you, tend to be a little preachy about preaching. You're being too thought-provoking. <laughs> well, uh, Calvin, in the, in, the, in the four or five minutes that we have remaining, uh, do you have any, any sort of final word that you would want to leave with uh, any preachers that might, or, or hopeful preachers that might be uh, listening to us? Well, I, I think, Michael, what I, would, uh, what I try to remind my students over and over again, that worship is composed really of two great ideas. One is liturgy, and liturgy simply is, is the teacher of the church. It's the part of the church thing that can be written down, mm-hmm. even read or recited uh, verbatim, uh, orally, wrote by wrote a lot of people object to liturgy because it does tend to say the same thing every week and can become kind of monotonous and boring so attention has to be paid to what we're saying and to say the words that are written down with some passion and and mm-hmm. faith the other word however is is the word uh, homily and homily and liturgy are set across from each other the liturgy is formal written down homily means conversation or chat uh, I, uh, I like my ser- students to develop manuscripts. That it develops their use of writing and improves their skill at forming words and so forth. But I don't want them to read their sermons. I want the, the sermon to come across as a relational thing, a storytelling session in which a preacher gets together with the people, and we relate things that draw us together and make us one in an informal way. And come and, now, let us reason together. Exactly. I, I think I think when you have the other part, when liturgy's in place, beautiful things, well prepared, written down, memorized by the church, great scriptures, great psalms. That's one aspect of teaching that ought to be in every church. The other aspect ought to also be there. The time came in, in the medieval church when the liturgy was over, the priest stepped out to just quote talk with his people, mm. and there was a reasoning process, a storytelling process. And it was all not written down. And those two beautiful things fit together, spontaneity mm. with something well-planned, contrive how people best learn and serve and, and exalt God. Mm. I'm sure we have a few people listening today who aspire to be better sermon makers. How about the rest of us who are sermon hearers? What advice do you have for us as we listen and, and take it in? That's a, that's a great question, Wayne. And I, I'm not sure that I can give you the kind of answer you want on that. But I, I do think going to church takes some preparation. And I would advise all the laity, when they go to church, to do a couple of things. Try to see Jesus in everybody they meet, including their pastor. Mm. Every sermon he preaches cannot be a winner, you know. Mm. And everyone isn't going to relate to them. But to try to look up and say, here's, here's a guy called of God. Uh, they're preaching the gospel as best they know how. They want to please Christ. They're not going to do it perfectly. Nobody does. But to cut the preacher a little slack on the Sundays when you don't feel like he or she has really come through with what you want them to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that make any sense? I, sure uh, I, th- I think pre- pre- too many ladies, people go to church and they're trying that pastor. <laughs> they're pushing him just to be sure he really blesses them. Yeah, you just know? <laughs> try to speak to me today. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or try to, I dare you. <laughs> Well, I think the problem is so often the pastor is chosen on this sort of performance basis. Who's the best performer? Right. And uh, if he can entertain me every summer or every Sunday, then he's in. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? That's exactly the opposite of the word homily. Mm. Uh, homily is a happening. It's it's a beautiful occurrence. It's that magic moment when two minds actually do come together, and it's so sweet you hate to leave it. The mm. conversation that nobody could possibly plan, totally mm. unrehearsed, suddenly holds incredible content that wells us into oneness. Mm. 
Wow, thank you. Uh, I'm only sorry that our time is just about gone here today. You know, you talked about male bonding earlier. (laughs) (laughs) I really appreciate the fact that you would join us here today, Calvin. Well, thank you so much, Wayne. I really appreciate, um, you know, anything Michael wants from me, he can have up Uh, to half my income, which wouldn't bless him much. But (laughs) (laughs) I do appreciate it and love him, and may God bless your work. Thank you. Well, I look forward to uh, catching up with you next time I'm down there. Yeah, boy, I'd love to have you, love to have you come to our school sometime and, yeah. and help us understand, like you did over at Southwestern Seminary. Those two times you came over there, our whole music department, for the first time, began to see contemporary composition as something worthy in the Christian church. Uh, and that was a gift you gave us. I'd love to come back. Well, we'll yeah. work on it. Okay. God bless. Thanks, Calvin. Have a great day. See you. Bye. Wayne, we have had a wonderful uh, show. D.A. Carson, man, what a what a what a brilliant, indeed. You know, I, guy. I, I sit here and I think, wow, we get to do this. Yeah, and we get to share this with people all over the country. And to hear him talk about the kingdom made me excited. I think once again about being yeah. uh, in the kingdom. Yeah. Uh, I and, saw you light up on oh, that today. <laughs> I, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't uh, respond because uh, what he said just moved me. So, huh. and Calvin Miller, what huh. a great brother. He's a good friend, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. Well, these are such good friends, and it illustrates the community yep. that even a radio program can be, Michael. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I'm still struggling a little bit with the idea. I mean, we we have a, a, a a section on our website called the community, but I don't want people yeah. to think that I re- think that's it's not a replacement. No, and radio isn't a replacement for community. What I hope we're doing is giving the listening audience the brothers and sisters out there, a little glimpse into our community, mm-hmm. not just as a paradigm of, ooh, this is, we're doing it, you know, well, but these are the mistakes mm-hmm. that we've made. These are the huge struggles that we have as we try to work out community here in Franklin. Mm-hmm. Well, as a final word today, let's talk about grace mm-hmm. in the context of community. Well, that's that's where we're going with this. We're going to close the uh, program uh, with a benediction. Uh, grace be with you all from the book of Hebrews. And that that's sort of the fuel that makes community work, or it's, I guess the, the spirit's really the fuel that makes it work. What, what keeps it moving, uh, or well-oiled or, 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 uh, I don't know which word to use, but what keeps community going, I guess, is grace. Extending each other grace. We, uh, it, well, th- uh, in the first place, grace brought us together. You know, uh, what a, what a, what a, a sign of God's grace to put us in community so that we we know we're not alone. Because the worst, uh, I think, human experience is loneliness. Mm. Uh, and so by by God's grace, he puts us in community so that we know we're not alone. By grace, as as that community comes together and we, we learn the worst about each other as well as the best about each other, it's, it's grace that lets us keep on accepting each other, lets us put up with each other mm-hmm. and forgive each other. And, and you can't have community without forgiveness and without grace. So grace is absolutely vital, and it's something that God gives you. It's a gift. You ask for grace. You don't sort of pluck it up from your uh, your uh, bootstraps. It's a wonderful thing to extend God's grace into each other's mm-hmm. lives, isn't it? You say it well with your song, which we'll close with today, Grace Be With You All.
Forget not the sufferings of Jesus And bear the disgrace that he bore Confessing his name For Christ is the same yesterday so glad you sat in with us for this classic session in the studio. If the Lord has used this hour to inspire you, please take a moment and email your comments to us at inthestudio at michaelcard.com. This podcast is made possible by our friends with the Christian Standard Bible. See all the ways that you can go deeper in God's Word when you visit csbible.com. And this month, we're highlighting the release of the new edition called the CSB Adorned Bible. This beautiful edition combines the current CSB translation with the classic depictions of Bible events from Gustav Doré's inspired wood engraved collection, the CSB Adorned Bible, a great translation with great art to aid your imagination as you read and meditate on what you read. Use the 40% discount on CSB purchases at Lifeway. Just type CARD40 with no spaces for your 40% discount. It's available for you online at csbible.com. Now for Ron Davis, Susan Sermon, Lance Mansfield, and our producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Thanks for listening in on this session in the studio with Michael Carr.